helps us understand mishpat a little bit more is the dignity of each person. I, I love the fact that this passage started off with, with talking about the affection of God for our forefathers and, and his love for us and how he's chosen us. But there's a temptation in hearing that message, isn't there? We hear that message and we go, man, God likes me. And this ugly selfishness comes up of, it's about us. And, and I actually hear this from time to time when we, we talk about outreach and mission in the church. You know one of the first things I hear? But when are we going to take care of our people? We talk about mission and outreach and we get worried that it, somehow if we're paying attention to people outside the church, it means we're not going to pay attention to those inside the church anymore. There's a, a part of this we, God loves us, therefore we need to be what people take care of. But God does something in this text, something really profound. He, he starts off by saying, I, I love your forefathers. I put my affection on them. I love you. I chose you. And then he adds in this other verse. He's talking about God as the he. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Do you see what he did there? God said, I love you. Be assured of that. Rest in that. Enjoy that. I also love the people you have a hard time with. I also love the people that you don't necessarily want to hang out with. The ones who, who kind of smell different than you do because they eat different foods than you do and they might not have the same hygiene practices that your culture has. And, and I love them. I love the people who, when they start coming into your, your worship services, they, they stand up and dance, and we sit with our hands folded. <laughs> I love even them. I, I love the people who are out on the streets, who because of, of family brokenness, because of mental health issues, because of a variety of other choices that they've made and other people have made in their lives, they find themselves living on the streets, unable to hold a job, or to handle education, or to even handle family and relationships. I love them too. God's mishpat is not simply about this affirmation of us and what God has done for us. It is also about God's yearning to do for all people because they are made in his image. One of the great truths of, of the Reformation movement, one of the great things that came out of that movement was not just God loves the church, which was a huge emphasis before that, but God loves you and 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 me. God loves each person. There's a beautiful interchange between two friends during the Reformation time period. John Calvin, people heard of him, lived in the 1500s, wrote an average of over a page of published material per day of his life. This guy was prolific, just constantly trying to teach and teach and teach. So John Calvin and a good friend of his, Martin Bucer, and they, they lived in different cities for most of their life, but for a time they, they kind of lived together and in the same area, and they dialogued back and forth. And John Calvin at one point says, we are called to love others and to serve others because God's image is in them. And he uses a, a phrase at the time, says, even in the Turk, which we would understand today as a Muslim, 
Even in the Turk, God's image resides. And in the most vile of people, God's image is not absent. And he says, because God's image is in others, we have to love them. Martin Bucer, and you can almost see this table argument over a beer or wine that's happening between the two of them. Martin Bucer says, no, 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 John, you got it wrong. We love others because that's the only way God's image lives in us. We love others because that's the only way God's image lives in us. And the two of them together help us understand this idea here of the dignity of each person. As I love you, I'm experiencing what it's like to be made in God's image. As I pour myself out and spend myself on behalf of the poor, as Isaiah 58 says, I am discovering more of what it means to live as God's image bearer. But as I do that, the person on the other side is also receiving God's love, receiving the word from God, the experience of God's presence, that they are loved and treasured by God. And so you have together this image of God reaffirming the image of God in each other as we learn to love one another. And the bottom line is God's love is not just for us. It makes me wonder sometimes about our theology of our songs. I know that sounds like a weird word, phrase to say, but the things we say. How many of us know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Notice who the weak ones are? They. They are weak. Somehow we remove ourselves from that question. Jesus loves me, this I know, but they are weak. Did you catch that? I sometimes wonder if what we need to do is put a second verse in there, because it is true, Jesus does love me, and the Bible does say that. But it also says this, Jesus loves us, this we know, for the Bible tells us so, little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. We are all weak. We are all broken. We are all caught up in the brokenness of the world around us. Paul says at one point to the Romans, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Survey after survey tends to look at people who are in poverty, and it, it checks what are the attitudes towards those who are in poverty? And most people, and sadly most evangelical Christians in North America, say it's the poor person's fault that they're in poverty. We want to blame them for their situation, which also translates into we want to thank ourselves for our own situation. We've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. But the biblical message is none of us can get out of the sin and the brokenness that's in the world. None of us can do it on our own. We are stuck and lost in our own, own sin and in the brokenness of the layers of sin that have been multiplied from generation to generation to generation. We, just as everyone else, is in desperate need of the grace of Christ. The dignity of each person being loved by God also brings us to a place of recognizing our own brokenness and our own sin and our own need for Christ. 
And this is where these two passages together begin to show us God's generosity. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. God acts on our behalf, not because of what we've done, not because of what we've left undone, but because of who he is. It's rooted in God's very character. This is who God is. He's the one who's, who's over everything. Another part of the passage said, he's the creator of all. It's the sense of God's over everything, but in being over everything, he's in that posture, chosen to be the one who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He acts on behalf of those he loves. He moves on behalf of those he desires. He comes around those who are struggling and hurting and entangled in sin. It's the great story of, of the gospel that we who were caught in our sins and had no way of getting out of it, God came to us and rescued us. Paul says it this way to the Romans. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The emphasis again and again in Scripture is that God's generosity is what has propelled him to rescue us from our sins. And not only from our sins, but ultimately from the consequences and effects of our sins. If we were to dig through the letter to the Corinthians, we come to this place at the end of, of 1 Corinthians where, where Paul's teaching the Corinthian church and he says, you know what? Christ right now is at work putting every enemy under his feet until the last enemy, death, is put under him. Death becomes a footstool, is defeated. Christ is at work destroying everything, including death, which is, which is what has come as the consequence of our sins. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. They ushered death into creation. They ushered death into our lives and into our experiences. It is the great consequence of our sin. We have been separated from God and bound over to death. But because of Jesus Christ and God's love for us in Christ, because of his generosity, God is peeling back and not only, not only the sin in us, but peeling back the consequences of that sin. So much so that in talking to the Colossians, Paul could say, God, God is right now reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Everything in heaven above and on earth below is being reconciled, is being made new in Jesus Christ. And it gets to a point at the end of the story in Revelation where we hear concretely that there's going to be no more sin or mourning or crying or pain. All those tangible things that we identify with poverty and brokenness of, uh, of a widow or an orphan or someone who is entangled and fleeing their own country and caught up in the poverty and the politics of this world. They're experiencing those moments of crying and death and mourning and pain. And the gospel message is even those things are being undone in Jesus Christ. All because our God is a generous God. 
which leads us to the call in these two passages in multiple places in Scripture to practice mishpat, practice justice. Deuteronomy 24 expands on the Deuteronomy 10 passage and it it puts it more concretely. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. You hear the cadence? They're being told, even in the places where you think you have ultimate dominion, your own backyard, your own livelihood, where you say, this is how I'm providing for my family and my household, even in that space that you think is all yours, even there, let my generosity show up. Now, I don't know, I don't want to push it for those of you who, who grow grapes and your own wine, do you leave some of the grapes on, on the vine? I'll let you guys figure that out. But it does put in front of us something that we need to seriously think about. There's a, a tendency that we say, well, I give to, as we will in a few minutes, to World Renew. Works on behalf of the church throughout the world addressing systemic poverty and helping people come out of poverty. Or, as we'll do next week, we are going to give an offering for the True City Christmas hampers. And, and we fill up these boxes with, with meals for people who cannot afford a Christmas meal of their own. And, and with that, we demonstrate the love of Christ as we give to them. And our deacons have a basket in back just outside where we've collected things for Good Shepherd and food for their pantries. We do those things. There is an act of generosity in giving of our overflow to others. That type of giving is very similar to how the Bible in the Old Testament talks about tithes and offerings. In fact, the tithes were supposed to be given in such a way that every three years they were celebrated with the poor of the community. But this passage is doing something else. It's telling us to leave it there. It doesn't say harvest, find the poor, and hand it to them. It doesn't say go and sell the extra stuff and and give the money and the proceeds to the poor. It says leave it for them. That's actually quite powerful in restoring the dignity of the people. It's inviting those who are named here, the, foreignness, the, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, to actually start participating in their created image again. Do you remember one of those first commands that Adam and Eve were given? It's to work the land, to cause the land to flourish. And here it's not saying just give a handout to those who are struggling. It's saying create the opportunity, even on your own property, for those who are struggling to do work. And to work in such a way that they're participating in the image of God that I created them to be. To work the land and cause the earth to flourish. This passage is telling the Israelites, you are to be part of my work of making all things new. 
so that the people who have felt ostracized and separated from me can actually start to participate with me in my work of restoring the land and causing the land to flourish. They're not just going to harvest it to eat it themselves. In the act of harvesting it, they're participating in my image once again. We are not called simply to provide for the physical needs of those entangled in poverty. We're actually called to restore them so that they participate with the dignity of being another human being. I'll just read this and and we'll close out with this. God's mishpat in Jesus Christ calls us to restore widows, orphans, and immigrants and anyone else who is marginalized so that they can live as our fellow image bearers and citizens in God's kingdom. I don't know how you're going to work that out in your space, in your home, in your relationships with your neighbors as you go to the gas station and grocery shopping. But our call is constantly to see the other people, to see the image of God in them, and to do so in such a way that calls them to join us in following God's grace, following his love, living as his image bearers here and now. Let's pray. You are good, Lord. Far better than we deserve. You could have abandoned us and left us on our own. You could have ended us when we rebelled against you. But you didn't. You grabbed hold of us. You chased after us. You pursued us and brought us to yourself. You reconciled us in Jesus Christ. You have given us a new life in him. And we are so thankful for that gift. Help us not to take it for granted, but to live with joy and generosity towards those around us, to look out for those who are experiencing the pain and frustration of brokenness in the world, whether their own or others, or, or simply because we have been sinning for generation upon generation. Come, Lord. Come live within us and live through us so that others may taste and see that you are good, that they may experience your character, your generosity, even as we have. We pray this in the good and loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing a song together again. It's one we sang during the prelude, We Are Called. But I want to just give a little glimpse of what's coming next week as the musicians get their place. Next